Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Ashtabula sits on the shore of Lake Erie, and in 1848, there were 820 souls who called this place home. So for this story, it would help for you to imagine what it might have been like back then. These are early settlers who had to brave some really rough conditions, slow communications, primitive medical help, and non-existent forensics. Frankly, it wasn't all that hard to get away with murder, as this story might attest. In 1848, eight of those 820 souls in Ashtabula belonged to the family of Alexander and Rebecca McAdams, simple farmers who were raising their six children a couple of miles east of the village. The evidence of their existence today remains in a collection of old tombstones at Edgewood Cemetery, sandstone markers that are mostly illegible now, but hint at an indescribable tragedy. Julia McAdams was 14 when she died in 1848. Two years later, Four of her siblings followed, 8-year-old Arthur, 21-year-old Abigail, 14-year-old Walter, and 12-year-old Luther. The year after that, on February 6, 1851, their mother, Rebecca, died. What could have all but wiped out this family in the course of three years? Carl Feather of the Star Beacon researched the story in 2012 and made the case that it wasn't some virus or waterborne illness or medical defect in the family gene pool. No, more likely, he and others have concluded, this family was wiped out, one at a time, by someone who was supposed to love them. The McAdams family lived on the North Ridge, That's Route 20 today. Alexander and Rebecca came to Ashtabula from Saratoga, New York, and settled in a gabled farmhouse, nestled in a pine woods on the north side of the road, west of where Field Brook crosses the highway. Five of their six children were still living at home in 1848. The missing member was their eldest daughter, Jeanette, reported to have been tall and beautiful with dark brown hair, but said to have had a wild side. She rejected all the male suitors in town and had enough of an odd personality that she left the farmhouse and moved to Cleveland, where she could better hide the eccentricities that might otherwise be too obvious in rural Ashtabula. Jeanette returned home from time to time to visit her family, and one such visit came on February of 1848. The family gathered around the fire to hear Jeanette's stories of life in the big city, and the family had some news to share themselves. Sister Julia, who was 14, was going to be moving to the nearby village where she would board with a local family and attend school. That night, after everyone had retired to their beds... Jeanette called out to her parents. Julia looked very sick. Dr. Coleman was sent for, but he could do nothing. Julia died suddenly and inexplicably. 
she became the first of the family to be laid to rest in Edgewood Cemetery. Jeanette stayed with her family a while to help with chores while everyone grieved, but one day she disappeared. Neighbors later reported seeing a tramp walking the road to Cleveland the day Jeanette vanished. But on New Year's Eve of 1848, Jeanette was back home again. She and her siblings played games and exchanged stories. The youngest of the children, eight-year-old Arthur, had an appetite for apples that night. He sat before the fire, petting his dog and snacking on this sweet treat. Suddenly, Arthur cried out, turned pale, convulsed, and fell dead. Mm. Now, when Jeanette stayed at home, she bunked with a woman named Catherine Gillette. Catherine was a seamstress, and as was the tradition of the time, she boarded at the house for months while making and mending clothing for the family. The children even referred to her as auntie. One night, as Catherine would later tell the story, she saw Jeanette stirring in the dark. Jeanette went to a trunk, pulled out a suit of men's clothes, put them on, then stood over Catherine in the dark. Catherine pretended to be sleeping, and Jeanette proceeded to climb out of the window. She returned before morning, put the masculine garb away, and reassumed her role as the family's eldest daughter. What a story there. I know. I mean, Jeanette, she did this so often. Her siblings were catching a peek of her in in her suit, and they were thinking Jeanette had a man in her room. 21-year-old Abigail even took her suspicions to her mother. Well, Rebecca followed up, checked the trunk, and found the clothes. It wasn't a man. It was Jeanette dressed as a man. I don't think that was too common back then. No. And I couldn't find anything that explained what the mother had thought of that or how she confronted her about it. But what we did learn was later that very evening, Abigail staggered into the room where her mother was, looking pale and in pain. She said, Mother, I wish I had not eaten the candy Jeanette gave me. Then she swayed, collapsed, and died. Oh, this is, this is getting creepy. Well, if Alexander and Rebecca were at all connecting Jeanette to these deaths, it wasn't apparent. Jeanette returned to Cleveland after Abigail's funeral, leaving Rebecca with just two children in their home and questioning how God could have taken the rest. The couple's grief was beyond imagining. When spring came, at least farm chores served to distract them. Alexander and young Walter, who was now 14, had picked up additional work hauling cut lumber to be shipped out of Ashtabula Harbor. That August, Jeanette returned for yet another visit. On August 15, 1850, Alexander and Walter returned from the port, tired and hungry. But after eating... Walter complained of feeling ill and went to his room upstairs. An hour later, his mother found him groaning in misery. Dr. Coleman was summoned again, but there was nothing he could do. Why aren't they putting the pieces together here? It's frustrating. I don't know. I mean, I've heard of parents being blind to their children's behavior, but this is a whole other level. And again, as with the other cases, Jeanette stayed with the family through the funeral, then returned to Cleveland. 
And then there was one. Luther McAdams was 12 years old when his last remaining sister appeared at the farm once again. It was mid-September. Luther was playing outside when he came in looking pale and feeling ill. He died as his four siblings before him. By now, local doctors were desperate to find out what was taking the McAdams family. They were examining the cookware. They were testing the water, neither of which was the culprit. But they also knew the family had not been taken by any common illness. Jeanette was gone from home for many months that time, returning during the winter of 1851. Rebecca, her mother, was ill when she arrived, so Jeanette took charge of looking after her mother. On the evening of February 6, Jeanette made her mother a cup of hot tea, adding to it a white powder that she said Dr. Coleman had left for her. Rebecca accepted the drink. Rebecca was 51 years old when she was laid to rest with her children. Reportedly, Jeanette disappeared for three months, then returned to visit her father, the last member of her family. Her father could no longer hide his suspicions and confronted her. She gathered her belongings and left. There were rumors after that. None of these were confirmed, and you got to wonder how much people have tried to add to the story over the years. That's true. It was said that sometime later a band of gypsies were passing through, and they set up camp along Field Brook, east of the McAdams farm, and Alexander paid them a visit and recognized Jeanette among them, and that when he approached her, she ran into the woods. Another story that's kind of turned into a legend that was Jeanette became a spy for the South during the Civil War, using her guise as a man. Whatever the case, Alexander, he tried to pick up the pieces of his life. He married a woman named Eliza. Alexander had one final visit from his daughter. One day, a tramp showed up at the home, dirty and dressed in ill-fitting clothes, asking for food. Eliza invited him in and gave him food. And while he was eating, Alexander returned to the house from his labors in the field. When the ravenous drifter lifted his head from the plate, Alexander recognized his daughter's eyes. He ordered her into his wagon and drove her out of town. Alexander McAdams never asked for a formal inquiry into the apparent poisoning deaths of his family. He died in 1876. In writing about this for the Star Beacon, I was kind of curious where some of these facts came from because it was really a detailed account for being, you know, 1850. And Carl Feather credited a book by John Stark Bellamy called The Last Days of Cleveland, a Cleveland Plain Dealer magazine story that was written in 1911, and a star beacon story from nearly a century ago, all of those which included interviews with that seamstress who had lived with the family. What a fascinating story. That was really awesome. All right. Well, that's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week, and may all of your mysteries have happy endings.
You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men, and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth, and together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.